the world we know is changing. I'm Moira Gunn, and welcome to Biotech Nation. From everyday people of average weight who don't smoke or drink, eat a healthy diet, and yet have suffered from heartburn, or its more technical name, GERD, to those of us with particular attributes, such as being male, or perhaps past the age of 40. Maybe you're a heavy smoker, or a heavy drinker. Perhaps you're obese, or at least overweight, or have worked in certain occupations which expose you to unhealthy substances, such as being a firefighter. The more boxes you check, the more likely you are to develop esophageal cancer. Normally only diagnosed in its very advanced state, Lucid Diagnostics has developed a two-minute test which can detect these cancers when they are precancerous. Dr. Lishan Aklog is Lucid's CEO. Dr. Aklog, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Maura. Thanks for having me. You'd be hard-pressed to find an adult, especially as you get older, who has not had heartburn or GERD or where someone close to them hasn't complained of heartburn or GERD. What is this, and how common is it? You're absolutely right. It is extremely common. So we use the term heartburn. Uh, it's not a great term because it, be, it it implies that it has something to do with your heart, and heartburn has nothing to do with your heart. It's a sensation after eating um, and in other situations where people just get this pain in the middle of their chest that um, that uh, is, is a result of a problem in the stomach and in the esophagus. Um, the official medical term for it is, uh, has the initials GERD, G-E-R-D, and the fancy medical term is gastroesophageal reflux disease, but it's most commonly known as GERD. And it's extremely common. About one in four adults in America have what we call, what we would consider significant GERD, which is symptoms of a, at least once a week. Um, and they take medications over the counter like Prilosec and Nexium to try to control those symptoms. Um, and so it's a very, very common, a very big issue for, for many, many people. Now you're talking about stomach contents and stomach acid getting up above your stomach into your esophagus. Um, Stomach acid has to do some damage to the esophagus, does it not? So the acid in the stomach is meant to be there. It's meant to stay there in the stomach. It's not meant to go elsewhere. And it's in the stomach for obvious reasons, to help us digest our food and so forth. The esophagus is a food tube that, that drains into the esophagus, so it allows our food to, to, to enter the esophagus, but the, the acid is intended to stay within the stomach. So when when the contents, when the fluid in the stomach um, and acid and actually other things, bile and other things in the stomach, find their way into, their, into the lower esophagus, that's not a good thing. It's not supposed to, that fluid is not supposed to be there. The esophagus is not used to it. And it can cause havoc. It can cause symptoms of heartburn. Uh, but more concerning is it can cause changes in the cells in the lower part of the esophagus uh, that can ultimately lead to precancerous conditions and to cancerous conditions. And so that's... That's the you know that's that's really where the, the where the where the where the damage can happen and what we're what the really serious consequences of GERD, which many people don't realize. Most people think heartburn. Yeah, I take you know, I take my Tums, I take my Maalox, or I take my Prilosec, and as long as my symptoms go away, uh, I'm good to go. And it, it's not that's not the case. It can actually lead to serious problems down the road. You mentioned that a lot of people take antacids, and uh, some of them actually rise to a prescription level. Won't that help you avoid this esophageal cancer? No. This is the actual answer there. Surprisingly, no. Uh, so you're right. You know, we have pretty good medications right now to treat 
heartburn. Um, I mentioned Nexium, Prilosec. These are a category of drugs called PPIs that can be available over the counter or by prescription. And they're very good at suppressing the acid and pre preventing the symptoms. And that's frankly one of the reasons why we treat GERD and heartburn as sort of just more of a nuisance than anything uh, serious. That's the common, common um, feeling amongst patients and, and their doctors. But that's just not true, that when you treat the symptoms, you're just masking it. Um, the process of the cells of the lower esophagus being exposed to the stomach contents and undergoing these changes into precancer continues unrelented. And it's actually, um, uh, it can just, it can be sort of dangerous because people feel a sense of um, that, 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 uh, a sense that they're... Um, they have it under control. Yeah. <laughs> it's really masking an underlying process that could actually uh, progress to more serious conditions. So for some of these people... Uh, it will lead to esophageal cancer. How common is that? And, and who is at risk? So so that's true. So you can develop people with heartburn and with reflux can develop the, a precancerous condition. And a subset of those patients, can uh, it can evolve to a late precancer and then ultimately to full-blown esophageal cancer. Esophageal cancer... Um, the diagnosis of esophageal cancer is made about in about 20,000 Americans a year. By the time we're done with this conversation, about a dozen, about a dozen Americans will get that diagnosis. And the tragedy is that in nearly all those cases, it's a near death sentence. About 80% of people who are diagnosed with cancer will be dead in five years. So it's one of our worst, um, most lethal cancers out there. It's up there with pancreatic cancer and liver cancer is kind of the big three most deadly cancers. About 16,000 people will die every year. And look, all deaths are tragic, all cancer deaths are tragic, but those 16,000 are particularly tragic because we know how, we know the evolution, we know where it came from, we know how to identify it early, and we know how to prevent it, and uh, we're just not doing so. Let me just stay with this for a while. Is there a profile of people who tend to develop into esophageal cancer? Yeah. So it's um, the best place to start is, to, is who's at risk for having the precancer. Because once you have the precancer, then you have a very, very high possibility through your lifetime of, of it evolving into later stage um, uh, precancers and to cancer itself. So there are very well established, we know who's at risk for that. Uh, anybody who has GERD or, or, or chronic heartburn, that's a, that's a major risk factor. Uh, and then a few other demographic um, characteristics, such as people over 50, um, people, uh, white race, um, men, smokers, obese people, and those who have a family history. So those are, that's GERD plus six other risk factors. And anyone who has three of those six risk factors has a, about a 10% chance of having the precancerous condition. And it's, and um, uh, that needs to be identified as well, I think we'll talk about in a second, because we don't want to wait until the cancer develops. Now, let me ask you this. We're not going to be talking about a cancer test. We're going to be going after the precancerous and today there is no precancerous test. Is that right? There's no test that's easy to perform that's, wide, that's widely utilized. Um, you, you can do endoscopies, um, you know, where you take a camera and you go to, you go to, the, uh, to an endoscopy center and two people take the day off of work and you're under anesthesia and they put this big tube in your, in your esophagus and your stomach. And sure, you can pick it up that way. And actually that test is recommended, but almost nobody gets it. Uh, only about one in 20 of the tens of millions of people who are recommended 
for testing who should be getting tested ever get that. So so you're right. There, there has not been a simple, straightforward test that could be utilized on a widespread basis to identify those patients who have this precancerous condition that can be addressed to prevent the progression to cancer. Now you're talking about you know the search for precancerous cells, and women hear this a lot. They get a they get a Pap test, and they say, "Well, we're looking for precancerous," and it sounds very vague. I mean, you're like, "Okay." Go look. <laughs> We're not really sure what it means. What does it mean, this precancerous? And, and how specific is it? Yeah. So that's a great analogy. Um, that what we're talking about in the, in the esophagus is very similar to what we talk about with pap testing. And so precancerous changes are abnormalities to otherwise previously normal cells that can be detected in a variety of ways um, um, that indicate that a process has begun that can head towards uh, later stages and then ultimately to cancer. And so what's exciting in the esophageal space, we've had pap testing for, for, for decades now, and it's had a big impact on, on, on saving lives um, and preventing deaths from cervical cancer. We now have the same opportunity in esophageal cancer where technology um, that was funded by the National Cancer Institute out of uh, Case Western Reserve University and other um, academic medical centers have been developed that allows us to identify 21 sites on two very specific genes where these early abnormalities can occur to the DNA at those, at those um, 21 sites and can indicate at the very earliest stage that that process has begun and can progress to later stages. Lucid Diagnostics has not just created a test for identifying these cells, they've also created a way to collect those cells. Tell us about that, how you go and collect these esophageal cells. Yeah, it's great. They really go hand in hand. I mean, the science behind these 21 sites on two genes is absolutely remarkable. It's cutting edge. The way we can identify that is amazing in the laboratory. But in order to, in order to do that work, in order to do that molecular work, you have to get the cells where the abnormality is. And as you said, the abnormalities that are occurring here are subtle, and they occur at the very end of the esophagus, just before the stomach. So that's that's a good ways down. It's a couple of feet from your mouth to that point. And so how do you collect cells like that without having to undergo this invasive procedure? And so what was developed by the same the same brilliant scientists was not just the molecular test, but a way to collect those cells in a very simple way that can be done in an office setting. So how is it done? There's a the the tool is quite simple. There's a capsule that's about the size of a vitamin pill. It's attached to a um, silicone catheter, which is basically like a little piece of spaghetti, a thin piece of maybe angel hair spaghetti. And on the end of the capsule, there's a balloon uh, that can be inflated or deflated. And so what the patient does is the patient swallows that capsule. It's tethered still to this to the um, little piece of spaghetti. And that cap, the capsule works its way down into the stomach. And the uh, person who's administering the test uh, will inflate the balloon and pull back just at the where the stomach meets the esophagus. And so remarkably, without any cameras or any other other sort of fancy technology, just with a fairly simple device, we know where the balloon is because it's right at that, at that juncture between the stomach and the esophagus. And then it just gently uh, swabs or collects the cells just like you would in any other, uh, other kind of swab test. 
um, it picks up those cells. And then with the balloon deflated, those cells get pulled into the capsule and the, it gets removed. Pulled right out. Pulled right out of your mouth. Pulled right out of your mouth. And the whole thing takes a couple of minutes. Uh, no anesthesia. And no other intervention can be done in a, in a, in a doctor's office. Um, and again, what's remarkable at that, that from a physician's point of view, is like, wow, we can actually collect cells exactly where the problem is in a very targeted way without exposing the sample to other cells anywhere else in the body and be able to send those cells off to a fancy laboratory that can do this fancy uh, molecular genetic testing. And no other appointments in another building. Just sit over here. Nope. <laughs> sit where you exactly. are. We got you. <laughs> no IVs, no nothing. Now, the whole idea that I am swallowing this thing, and even though there's this, it seems like, oh, it's small. It's like angel hair. It's following it down. I'm like, how do I get it down? I keep thinking I'm going to gag on this. Have yeah. you have you done this? I've done it myself. It's sort of a requirement that everybody in the company does. We had a board meeting this week, and we forced a couple of the board members to have the test done. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, there's an, there's, our team is incre incredibly well-trained on how to do this. And it, it people do sort of look at something as like, I don't know, can I swallow that? And will that go down? And 99% of the time, it works just fine. There's a few people here and there who have trouble swallowing pills who have a hard time getting it down, but that's like one in a hundred. And um, just with the proper training and with the proper um, coaching, uh, it's over in the blink of an eye. And uh, it's actually quite comfortable and not um, and really not an issue at all. And we've done that, you know, ten, tens, tens of thousands of times. And so many people, you know, they think about, okay, how can I get this down? And once you get it sort of just swallowed, your body kind of takes it the rest of the way, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just like swallowing a pill, right? If you're swallowing a vitamin pill, once it's, you only have to swallow until it's past the back of your throat. And that's what your esophagus does. Your esophagus contracts and relaxes and basically can move food and pills. And in this case, our, our capsule um, into the stomach, um, just like, a, like it would a, a pill or a food. And then somebody pulls it out. How tough is that? Piece of cake. Yeah, <laughs> it happens quickly, and you hardly <laughs> notice. Honestly, just to be, in, in all seriousness, the part that people um, concern themselves more is with the swallowing part. Once you've swallowed it, the rest of the procedure is um, is uh, is really quite straightforward and, and and very comfortable. But I like this. After the test, they give you a piece of cake. I think that would be <laughs> that's a good marketing <laughs> yeah. plan. But we won't talk about that. Think, we yeah, won't. We won't talk about that. <laughs> but you know what? People what the patients appreciate is the they know what the alternative. And we 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 actually track this data like patient satisfaction. It's very important that we know that we get feedback from patients and what they appreciate is the opportunity to get an answer as to whether they're at risk for developing this horrible cancer and that that answer can be obtained with such a simple a simple um, cell collection procedure that can be done in an office setting. So we have a lot of gratitude, particularly those in whom we find an abnormality where they didn't, where they didn't suspect it. Do we have procedures to treat it at the precancerous stage? Yeah. So, uh, yes, exactly. So there's no... The reason why early detection, whether it's what we're doing, which is pre-cancer detection or early detection of cancers like breast and colon and stage one, the reason, the only reason that can, that's useful is if you can do something about it uh, after you've picked it up early. So that's a necessary part of having a successful program, successful early detection program, not only has to be, it's not only that you have to be able to detect the problem, but you have to be able to do something about it that alters the course uh, uh, for that particular patient. So um, 
And that's why those other early detection programs have been wildly successful at decreasing deaths. Deaths from breast cancer, deaths from colon cancer, uh, <clears throat> deaths from cervical cancer are all substantially lower, 50% or more lower because of early detection programs. So for this to be a, a successful early detection program, it's, it has to leverage the fact that once we identify the precancer condition, then, then the patient, those patients who have a positive result, uh, will get an endoscopy, and that endoscopy will determine where along the spectrum are they. Are, at the, are they at the earliest stage of precancer, or perhaps did we were we fortunate to pick up a late precancer before it developed into cancer? And then the appropriate management follows. So, if somebody's in a very early stage precancer, um, that just requires surveillance. So you come in, just like you get people get a colonoscopy on a regular basis. You would come in typically every three years and get a get another. Uh, uh, endoscopy to determine whether to catch it to see if it progresses from one to the other. If at the beginning or through later surveillance, um, you could you detect that that it's progressed to the later stage cancer, but still before cancer, uh, then you have the opportunity and and the need to intervene. And the intervention there is what's called an ablation procedure, where you can go in with a uh, in a very minimally invasive way, you can eliminate those abnormal precancerous cells and reliably prevent them from progressing to cancer uh, and actually prevent the cancer. Um, so exactly right. That's, that's the whole point of picking these things up early is so you can monitor and treat them uh, to prevent them from developing into cancer. So it's not unlike the colonoscopy saying, well, we found this, we found that, we, we took this out, we took this polyp out, we did this, and, and, and we're going to watch you and we're going to keep coming back with this to Correct. make sure Yes. that it doesn't develop. Yes. And if they and if you find a, a, an abnormality, you remove it. Um, very similar, the, the, the similar prospect. So that's that's how you prevent it from developing into cancer. And that's what's great here is that it's actually well established on how you do that. We just haven't been finding those patients. So it goes back to what I said at the beginning, Laura, which is that every esophageal cancer death is particularly tragic because we know what to do. We know if we find the precancer early, we know how to prevent the cancer. And so that's uh, nobody should be dying of esophageal cancer because we we know who should be tested, and we know if we test them, we can pick up these early conditions and uh, monitor and intervene in a way to prevent them from developing cancer. Now I want to mention this. We talked about the PAP test, and I noticed that the vice chair of your board and the strategic advisor is uh, Stan Lapidus, and it was Stan Lapidus that developed both the modern PAP test that we all use now and Cologuard, which we're all aware of. He's an engineer. That's right. Uh, so you're right. We're very fortunate to have uh, Stan Lapidus as our vice chairman and a close, close advisor to me and to the company. And Stan is uh, a legend in this space, and he's had such an incredible impact First with cervical cancer, he invented the thin prep device, which is the way the modern PAP test is done. As you said, he's an engineer. The original prototypes of that are actually on display at the Smithsonian Institute. And it's been estimated that about a billion women have undergone PAP testing using his technologies. And uh, that, that has led to the uh, saving millions of lives. What a, what an impact uh, for an individual. And he's, he's done the same thing. He was the co-founder and inventor, co-inventor of the um, of the Cologuard stool DNA test, and um, this is the third cancer that he's that he's working on with us because he understands the value of early detection and um, cancer prevention, and uh, believes our technology has the opportunity to do, to do the same thing 
uh, for esophageal cancer that um, the ThinPrep and Cologuard have done for cervical and colon cancer, respectively. And one last thing I wanted to note is that we talked about uh, who in the general population was susceptible, more susceptible, that profile. But there's another group of people who are especially susceptible, and that's firefighters. That's correct. So, you know, firefighters, um, they're our heroes, right? They go in and literally walk into burning buildings uh, to to uh, save us and, and, and others. And in the process of doing that, they're exposed to a variety of toxic substances. Um, firefighters have an overall elevated risk of cancer. A large percentage of firefighters die of cancer. And if you list all the cancers that have, that they have a particularly increased risk of, uh, esophageal cancer is, num- is the second most, um, the second greatest, about uh, 60 to 70 percent increased chance of developing esophageal cancer compared to compared to average um, the average population. So we've embraced that, um, and we've you know there's a lot of attention within the firefighter community at cancer prevention. There are a lot of programs, and we've embraced that, and we've engaged now in dozens of firefighters across the country where we have health fair events where we come on site and identify those who are at risk, and um, and we test them. Uh, we do the cell collection and test them for esophageal precancer, and we found dozens of cases of that, and we're uh, helping to have that kind of Im- impact. And it's particularly gratifying in that population because of the yeah, sort of the heroic work that they do. Now, if you are a, f- a fire department somewhere in the country, can you partake in that program? Absolutely. Yeah. We, we love hearing from fire departments. And uh, as I said, most have an interest in cancer prevention. And we've been able to work closely with the fire departments and the, and the, and the chiefs that are focused on this to bring programs on site, uh, sometimes with the, uh, the active, but often even with, re, with, with the retired firefighters from that department so we can test everybody who, who has potential risk. So, yeah, that's a partnership that we've been expanding across the country, and we would, we would look forward to hearing from any, that, any, any departments that would like to participate in that. Well, Dr. Acklog, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back and see us again. This has been great. Thank you, Maria. I really appreciate it. Dr. LaShawn Acklog is the CEO of Lucid Diagnostics. More information is available on the web at luciddx.com. That's luciddx.com. Listen to more biotech podcasts at biotechnation.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Biotech Nation is a regular feature of the weekly public radio program, Tech Nation. Listen to the full show via podcast or on your local public radio station. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.